First Peter chapter five. <clears throat> And uh, we'll start reading there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, kind of in the middle of the verse there. <clears throat> and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is a very familiar passage of scripture, isn't it? But it's somewhat of a surprise that these particular words regarding the need for humility are found in this letter, which is addressed to a group of suffering Christians. Christ had told his disciples that they would be hated by all because of my name, but that it was the one who had endured to the end that would be saved. Jesus had said that he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And you recall the scribe that came to Jesus and told him that he would follow Christ wherever he went. What was Christ's reply, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe says that he's going to follow Christ wherever he goes, and the Lord says to him, in essence, you don't understand. You claim that you'll follow me wherever I go, but I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere even to lay my head. Christ came to his own but his own received him not, and he was despised and forsaken of men. This letter, as I, as I said, is addressed to suffering Christians. Well, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who has become identified with Jesus Christ, one who has denied the world and himself and is following after Christ. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, for it has been To you, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Some of you may have felt that. As the hymn says, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. Peter addresses this letter to Christians that are scattered, that are aliens in the world, aliens and strangers. And if you turn to chapter 1, verse 17, you see that he exhorts them to conduct themselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. They're only passing through the, the world. The Christian is a stranger, and ultimately he's one who's not fit for it. These Christians are sojourners and pilgrims, On earth, and the text tells us that they were distressed, not only by one trial that had come upon them, but that they were troubled by various trials, as it says in chapter 1, verse 6. You know, one trial can come upon us, and we feel maybe we're a match for it, but it's when the trials start to stack up, isn't it, that we begin to feel the weight of things, that the, the heat 
is there. Well, we don't know the specific circumstances of the trials that Peter is addressing, but it must have been significant because in chapter 4, verse 14, he refers to it as the fiery ordeal among you. These Christians felt like they were being consumed by fire. And there was the temptation for them to be surprised that such a strange thing was happening to them at all. They did not understand why it was that they were going through all the trouble that had come upon them. Or that it could, in fact, really be necessary for them to be as distressed as they were. Now, I think this is where Scripture is so helpful for us. Because when we come to Scripture, we do not come to sentimentality. We do not come to empty emotion. No, in the Word of God, we see the facts laid out before us as they really are. There's no denial. There's no suppression of the facts. In Scripture, we find that we are exposed for who we are in this world now. And Peter admits that these Christians are aliens in the world. He admits that they are distressed by their trials. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to remind the brethren of their full identity. He admits that they're strangers on earth, but he goes on from there. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, that they're chosen by God, that they have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Trials in our lives must always be viewed in the context of the fundamentals, that is, who we are in Christ, that we are those who have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance reserved for us in heaven. And we find all these things mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1. We have to follow the example of Scripture in our thinking and start with these basic things when we are faced with trials. That the Christian is fundamentally one who is protected by the power of God through faith. And we must never forget that we are protected by God in the midst of the trial. That what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is real. That we have been chosen to obey Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. It's a common tactic, I think, of Satan to try to dissuade us regarding our true identity in the midst of the trials, to get us to call into question who we really are and what is going on then basically to us in the trial. And we must be, I think, on the alert of this because it's almost certain to happen. Satan will attempt to wreak all sorts of of mental and emotional pain on us if he can convince us that we are not really what God has said of us, that we are not his children, and that God does not love us or care for us or protect us at all, that we are alone in our various struggles. Well, we know that trials come and go in our lives, but under it all, 
lies the bedrock of the entire Christian position that according to the great mercy of God, we have already been born again to a living hope. We have already been saved. Satan would have us believe that God is trying to destroy us in the midst of the trial. But scripture tells us that we have already been redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ has already been revealed. He has appeared in these last times for our sake. The Christian's inheritance is imperishable because we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. That is, by the word of the Lord. So you see, it's very helpful for us to start with basic things when we go through trials, because this is where Scripture starts, and so should we. The Christian has been saved. That is the bedrock, that is the anchor to which we must hold as we go through various trials. But we do not serve a God who asks us to take some blind existential leap as we go along in life. He doesn't ask us to deny the basic facts of our own real suffering and pain, does he? The Christian isn't one who is in denial. God does not refuse to answer the question that we all ask when we are suffering. You know the question. It's the longest and the most complex question we ask God, I think. It's the question that depends on the very nature of God and upon our basic relationship to him. And that is the question, why? Why do I have to go through this? Why does this have to happen now? Why can't this all be over? Why does this have to hurt so much? Why is this happening to me again? Well, God has been pleased to answer each of these questions clearly for us in his word. And the answer to each of these whys is that God is saving you. We've already said that the Christian is one who has been saved, yes, but that's not the whole story. If that is the end of the story, that the Christian has been saved and the rest of our life here on earth is just ancillary to the fact of our regeneration, then we would be forced to come to all sorts of horrific conclusions. Not the least of which is that nothing that we are going through right now really matters. Right? Not to us. It doesn't matter to us, and it certainly doesn't matter to God. 
In short, if the Christian life on earth ends at conversion, then we're left with fatalism. God has stepped back from us. And our pain and suffering here on earth is absolutely pointless. We're just going along, right? The important things have already been done, and we're just somehow getting through this. Well, as one lost philosopher once said, if that is what God is like, then God is the devil. Well, praise God, none of this is true at all, is it? The Christian has been saved, and he is being saved. This isn't to say that we are earning our own salvation, nothing like that. I, I mean that the Christian is being saved in the sense of what Scripture means, that salvation for the Christian is under him, but that it is also ahead of him. It is also in front of him, before him. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 5. It says that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. You, Christian, are obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What is God doing to us? In this world? Why the distress of multiple trials? Why the fiery ordeal? Brethren, what is God doing? God is saving us. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There are things in us that must be removed from us before we will be fit for heaven. And God is extracting these things the only way possible, and that is by using heat, by fire. It seems so harsh, doesn't it? We're just being thrown into the fire. But I want you to notice with me a pattern. Chapter 1, verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. Look at chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but his choice and precious in the sight of God. Chapter 2, verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Next verse. This precious value then is for you who believe. You see, unbelief says that God blindly and needlessly throws us into the cauldron, right? 
Scripture says that God is carefully purifying and proving something that is precious, something very costly, and that is your faith. He is proving, that is, he is assaying the authenticity, the genuineness of our precious faith because we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. According to God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again. For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've received mercy, brethren. And we need to see that the mercy of God continues to be extended to us in the midst of the trial. God is saving us in the trial. The trial is necessary because it reveals true faith. Faith that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how scripture tells us we should approach trials. Well, very well, we approach trials in this way, but we need to be more specific. How do I respond to trials? How am I actually to act in the midst of the trial? Well, the first thing we have to say is that we must submit to the process that God has laid out for us. Practically, this letter goes on to say that this involves submitting to the authorities that God has placed over us. In our lives, submitting to our masters. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to be understanding of their wives and to honor them. The word submit occurs multiple times in this letter. We are to trust the Lord, trust his ability to arrange the circumstances in our lives. We're not to fight against the Lord in this, to rebel against the Lord. It is better if God shall will it so that we suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. And if we recognize that what Scripture says of us and of God is true, that we are really chosen to obey him and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then we have to look to Jesus Christ as our great example The same God who caused us to be born again has called us to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. And what did Christ do in the midst of the trial? He kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Submit to the trials, the tests that God brings into your lives, and consider Jesus Christ. It's amazing that we're actually called to keep on rejoicing that we share the sufferings of Christ. God is in control, and we should submit to him in the midst of our trials and entrust our souls to a faithful creator in continuing to do what is right. We submit to God in the trial, and we persevere in the trial. Christ fixed his gaze on the joy that was set before him, and we must maintain a Godward view looking forward to the eternal glory that is before us in Christ. 
These aren't things that the natural man can do. If we're left to our own strength, we cannot bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, like this letter tells us. But we're not left to ourselves, are we? The spirit of glory and of God rests on us, and he will sustain us and lead us through the valley. As painful as trials can be, it's often in the trial that God seems to be the most near, right? We've all experienced that. The trials are painful, but there's this other, this deeper sweetness at times because you know God is near. And that's the testament of the work of the Spirit of God in us. Well, at the beginning of our time together, I mentioned how shocking it was that humility is also mentioned as a right response to suffering. It's not something we would get from worldly wisdom, but it's what we find here in chapter 5, verse 5. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. You cannot have real submission without humility. And we do not function in isolation, right? In our Christian walk, we do not function in isolation in trials. If one member suffers, all suffer. That's 1 Corinthians 12.26. We are called to submit to one another, and that is driven by humility, in fact, I would say that true submission cannot exist without humility. The two are linked, linked together. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's a command here. A command that is followed by a warning. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Scripture says, make sure none of you suffers as a, as a sinner, as an evildoer. If we are to suffer, let it be for doing the will of God. He says, submit to the pattern given to us in Jesus Christ, who submitted himself to the trial of pain and even death given to him by his Father. There's a real battle at hand in our lives here on earth, there's a struggle against our own pride that we would resist what God sovereignly brings into our lives. Let us be on guard against that. God is opposed. God is against those who are proud. There are many examples of this, but I'll just consider Nebuchadnezzar. Scripture says... In Daniel, you don't need to turn there, that Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. And what was the outcome but that his glory was taken away from him? God opposed his pride by changing his mind into the mind of a beast and he was given over to insanity it seems that the very image of God was taken away from him for a time, and he thought and acted like an animal. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's Daniel 4.37, which I think is one of the scariest verses in Scripture. 
God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Well, the same thing happened to Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. The son knew what had happened to his dad, but even then he didn't humble himself under the hand of God. It says, But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. And the hand of God, as you know, came with writing on the wall and pronounced an end to Belshazzar's kingdom, and he died that night. God is opposed to the proud. Isaiah 2.11, the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's a promise. Luke 1, 51 and 52, he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Luke fourteen eleven. for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That is not a promise that we tend to cling to as we should. But there it is, the promise of God for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. God is opposed to the proud, brethren. But he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34, though he scoffs at scoffers, Yet he gives grace. He gives grace to the afflicted. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, what are we to do in response to this fact? There it is, laid out for us in 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Or as James puts it, submit therefore to God. We can trust the hand of God. Don't kick against the goads. Don't resist him. Submit therefore to God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. His work in our lives is for our good. He is not trying to destroy us. He is saving us. What does the text go on to say? Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. That is why scripture exhorts us in other places to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials and to exult in our tribulations. God has eternal glory for us in Christ, and we need to submit to his timing. After suffering comes what? Resurrection. Life. Well, in closing, I'll just ask, what does submission to God look like in the midst of trials? We have to be practical We can't be theoretical in this. 
Submission to God in the midst of trials is when a person humbles himself and falls limp under God's mighty hand. Submission to God in the midst of trials is when we put all our worries, all our cares, all our concerns onto the one who cares for us. I think the text before us is saying that anxiety is rooted in pride. And I'm a physician. I get it. There's all sorts of elements, both biological and psychological and spiritual, involved in anxiety. But what the text before us says is that anxiety is rooted in pride. Pride says no one can fix this problem like I can fix this problem. Pride looks to self. Pride says, I will not trust anyone. Pride doesn't believe that God even cares. Pride doesn't submit to others. You remember the disciples with Jesus in the boat in the midst of the storm, how they said to him, do you not even care that we are perishing? Do you not even care? Reminded me of that old song. Does Jesus care when my way is dark? With a nameless dread and fear, as the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? What was Christ's reply? What did he say in Mark 4:39? Hush, be still. We know he was speaking directly to the wind and the sea. But I think ultimately he was also speaking to the storm of anxiety that was within the hearts and the minds of the men who were with him in that boat, who didn't even believe that Jesus cared for them. Why were they afraid? He asked them, Do you still have no faith? Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. If we will only consider the one who cares for us, I think that we will find it an easy thing to cast all our anxiety on him in the midst of our trial. And instead of resisting his mighty hand in pride, we will find that there is mercy for us and grace enough to resist not God but our adversary, the devil, as the text goes on to say, and to remain firm in our faith until the end. God have mercy. These are things that I don't think anyone wants to share from Scripture. God have mercy on me. I need this more than anyone. Amen.